What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show, y'all. Welcome to the show. So, President Trump gave us uh, one of the most classic President Trump interviews of all time. Um, We will be diving into that, and uh, I will be thoroughly enjoying it. He's a mess. He's an absolute mess. He doesn't know what he's doing. His strategy blows. Uh, We'll talk about that. We also have a story that just came out this morning. Uh, John Kasich is going to speak at the DNC. We'll talk about what that means, why he's doing it, you know, what my view on it is, and all that stuff. We also have um, unmarked federal cars uh, or federal authorities snatching peaceful protesters out of Portland. So very, very troubling developments there. An MSNBC host has seen the light on single-payer Medicare for All, which... um, That should bring a smile to our faces, but also, (laughs) this is the same person who, like, viciously and relentlessly smeared Bernie Sanders, so it's a little bittersweet, to say the least. And then later on, somehow, Bill O'Reilly made it back in the show. I don't know how exactly, but he did. He made it back in the show. Oh, and I will give you the update on the polls, the newest polls coming out on the general election. And, oh, my God, I've never... I've never seen anything like this before. This is just out of this world, totally out of this world. Anyway, all right, without further ado, let's get started. President Trump sat down with Fox News. Let's do it. President Trump sat down for an interview with Chris Wallace of Fox News. Um, Chris Wallace is one of the better Fox News hosts, which isn't saying much, admittedly. It's like being the tallest kid in kindergarten. But, you know, um, when he puts his mind to it, he can ask some tough questions, and he can be aggressive. And there were many parts of this interview where he kind of, like, just 
casually corner Trump because he's significantly more intelligent than Donald Trump is. And um, what came from it was hilarious. So here's the part of the interview about masks. Who wore a mask for the first time in public at Walter Reed this weekend? Question, the CDC says if everybody wore a mask for four to six weeks, we could get this under control. Do you regret not wearing a mask in public from the start? And would you consider, will you consider a national mandate that people need to wear masks? No, I want people to have a certain freedom, and I don't believe in that, no. And I don't agree with the statement that if everybody wear a mask, everything disappears. Hey, Dr. Fauci said don't wear a mask. Our Surgeon General, terrific guy, said don't wear a mask. Everybody was saying don't wear a mask. All of a sudden, everybody's got to wear a mask. And as you know, masks cause problems too. With that being said, I'm a believer in masks. I think masks are good. But uh, I leave it up to the governors. Many of the governors are changing. They're more mask into. They like the concept of masks. But some of them don't agree. I do say this. Schools have to open. Young people have to go to school. And there's problems when you don't go to school, too. And there's going to be a funding problem because we're not going to fund when they don't open their schools. We're not going to fund them. We're not going to give them money if they're not going to school. Every part of that was absurd, so let's walk through it. First of all, he says he's not in favor of a national mandate for masks because freedom. But if you really take that to its logical conclusion, then if states mandate masks, then it's states restricting freedom, which in theory should be just as tyrannical as the federal government restricting freedom. If you say, hey, the federal government mandating masks is tyranny, well then the state government's mandating it as well would be tyranny. It would just be tyranny from the states instead of the federal government. But he's not willing to take that to its logical conclusion because I think he knows deep down that it's absolutely ridiculous, that it's really not tyrannical, it's really not some absurd restriction on freedom, any more so than having seatbelts in cars is an egregious infringement on on freedom. Uh, It's a very basic safety regulation in a very extreme time in history when there's a pandemic. So he's not even willing to use his flawed logic and take it to its conclusion, because again, the conclusion would be if a, ma- if a mask mandate is against freedom, well, then it would also be against freedom if the states mandate it. So if he was really standing by that, he would say, no, I've also blocked the states from mandating masks, but he doesn't do that. So I think he knows deep down that that's absurd. Now, he actually says there, I don't agree that if you wear a mask, this disappears, talking about COVID-19. But he's famously said at least two other times, and I remember we talked about it on the show, that it's, it's just it's going to disappear one day. COVID is going to disappear one day. One time he said early on, like, as soon as the heat comes in in April, along with the heat, it's supposed to just disappear. Many people say it's supposed to just disappear. He even said it more recently, and he wasn't... Um, he wasn't talking about it in the context of the heat in the, in the recent interview, but he said one day it's going to disappear. So let me get this straight. Without wearing masks, one day it's going to disappear. But if you do wear masks, he says it, that's not going to make it disappear. Okay, there's 
no doubt that wearing masks will make it disappear sooner. Sooner. So again, why wouldn't you be in favor of it? Listen, guys, I had the opinion early on when it came to this pandemic that we needed to do basically the entire economic shutdown. We needed to press the pause button on the entire economy um, because, you know, what the hell else were we supposed to do? There's a pandemic ripping through the country. But looking at all the evidence since then, we know a lot more now than we did early on. And looking at all the evidence, we definitely could have gotten away with just partial shutdowns of uh, industries that are particularly in a, in a bad situation, like restaurants. You can't really eat inside and be close to people because you're going to spread the virus like crazy. So very specific economic shutdowns. But overall, you could keep most of the economy open. The only requirement we needed from early on to stop this thing in its tracks is universal masks. That's it. Now, why am I saying that? Because countries where they have virtual universal masks handle this pandemic swimmingly. I've given the example a thousand times on the show, but Japan, basically everybody wears a mask there, less than a thousand COVID deaths, less than a thousand. So if you just had early on, oh, it would have been amazing if Trump came out there wearing a mask from day one of this pandemic, selling Make America Great Again masks on his website, all the conservatives would have been like, yeah, masks are awesome. And then you would add Democrats as a general rule tend to believe more in science, like climate change, evolution, things of that nature. So they'd be like, yeah, I agree. Let's all wear masks. So then the whole country basically would have been wearing masks, or at least eight out of ten people, and we would have done really well with this stuff. Um, but then the final point here is, and I think this is incredible, he brings up the argument for masks that like, well, well, well just leave it up to the states. Let them decide. I'm, the big bad federal government is not going to interfere. But then he goes on to talk about schools opening, and he says, no, we want to make them open. You just said, leave it up to the states for masks. Now you're saying, no, we're not going to leave it up to the states when it comes to schools. So you want to force schools open. You want the federal government to effectively make the decision by cutting funding. So you want to force schools open, which is the federal government putting pressure on the states. But you don't want to force states or, and force the country to wear masks at the federal level. So again, he just flips on the principle. The principle when it comes to masks is, I guess, um, well, default to states' rights. But he's not defaulting the states' rights when it comes to schools. He wants to force the schools open. That's the federal government forcing the states to do something. So there's no – guys, I think this is one of the things about the Trump era that drives me crazy. It's not just that he's wrong about stuff, which he is, but there's no consistency. There's no, you know, actual ideological commitments. He's just – everything about him and the decisions he makes is just totally impulsive. And just totally based off of, you know, what he thinks when he just watched a Fox News segment six and a half minutes ago. Like, this is how he's making his decisions. And he ends up looking like a total idiot. Because he flips on principles left and right. He has no principles. Um, and, like, there is no doubt that every step of the way, his decisions have been anti-science. There was a story that came out recently about how the Trump administration is redirecting uh, the coronavirus data from going to the CDC to first coming to them. Why? Because they want to juice the data. Because basically Trump has given up on fighting this pandemic in any serious way. So now he wants to just play with the numbers to make himself look better and to make it look like the numbers aren't as bad as they are. I mean, this is, this is, this is comical stuff, man. This is Banana Republic stuff, what's going on here. So 
it's really amazing to me. Guys, the most important policy you could have in the middle of a pandemic is universal masks. And that's the last thing that they want to do. He's avoiding as much as possible doing something like that, um, but he is going to force schools to open. And listen, I don't, just so everybody understands, I'm not saying I have all the answers here. I don't. I have the humility to know that I don't have all the answers. But the idea that, like, oh, opening schools is a no-brainer and it's, like, because he goes on to say in the same clip, like, it doesn't affect children that bad. It doesn't affect children that bad. So what are we going to do? I think we should open the schools. What about the teachers, dipshit? What about that? What about that? What about the fact that these kids are like little Petri dishes and, you know, they live with older people. And then what is, what's going to happen if they visit the grandparents on the weekend or something? What about that? There's no thought in what he's saying. It's all, everything got immensely political and partisan is actually the better word for it. And so, like, to the extent there is any consistency in his ideology, which there isn't, one of the defining characteristics is just like owning the libs. I'll just say the opposite of whatever they're saying. Oh, they want to be careful and maybe not open schools or do something different because of the pandemic? Well, no, now I'm against that. See, he's trying to force everything back to normal, but you can't do it unless you control the virus. There will be no normal unless you control the virus. So you think you could force everything back to normal and pretend like everything's all hunky-dory. Well, this is why you're down massively in the election. He's down massively now. And we'll get to that story later. I'll give you the specific poll numbers. But see, Trump his whole life, he'll just like override stuff with confidence and bravado and just plow forward. And, and everything is treated like a marketing problem. Well, in many ways that works politically and that actually is a, is a benefit to always be your strongest advocate. But there are some situations in which it's just not a marketing problem, and you can't override it through force of will. One of those things is a pandemic. The other thing is a, a giant economic downturn, a COVID depression, incredibly high unemployment, low wages, 32% of the country not being able to pay their rent or their mortgage. You can't just override that, but he's trying. And that's why he keeps slipping in the polls more and more. But this clip just makes me sad because you would think that it's a very basic thing to want somebody to run the country who at least acknowledges and believes in the science. But we don't even have that. We have an idiot who trusts his gut and, and impulse over actual science and doctors. And it's just disgusting to see. And the results are quite literally deadly. All right, next. All right, what do we got next? We got the same interview. I got a few with this. President Trump was immediately fact-checked in real time by Chris Wallace on Fox News. This is pretty funny. And it's really because they wanted to fund the police, and Biden wants to fund the police. Sir, he does not. Look, he signed a charter with Bernie Sanders. I will get that one, just like I was right on the mortality rate. Did you read the charter that he agreed it says to? nothing or, about defunding. Oh, the really? It says abolish. It says defund. Let's go. All right. Well, you give me the charter, please. All right. Please, you've got to start studying for these. He things. says defund the police. He says defund the police. They talk about abolishing the police. They talk about illegal aliens. I look, forward, I look forward to seeing that. Meanwhile. So let's see okay, what this says see. here prosecution, sanctuary cities, 
incentivize illegal alien, expand asylum, abolish immigration detention. No, I, that's not. Well, the no, I, I, well, fine. Okay. This thing is many pages long. End prosecution of illegal border crosses. Support deathly and these are the worst things. Sir, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not disagreeing with you on any of those. I'm disagreeing about defund police. The White House never sent us evidence that Bernie Biden platform calls for defunding or abolishing police because there is none. It calls for increased funding for police departments that meet certain standards. Biden has called for redirecting some police funding for related programs like mental health counseling. What I'm amazed by is that even this late in the game, Trump has simply not adjusted the message to something more powerful. So the strategy against Hillary was corruption, corruption, corruption. She's the status quo. She's the establishment. I'm the outsider. She wants to outsource your jobs. TPP, she called it the gold standard. NAFTA supported that. The Iraq war, all these wars, so you got to vote for me because I'm the outsider and the forgotten man will never be forgotten again. That was the 2016 strategy. You want the same old, same old, or you want to try something new? That was the 2016 strategy. 2020 strategy is Biden is a radical left controlled by Marxists, and I will protect statues and... Um, you can't go for him because he's an extremist. The first strategy, the one, the strategy against Hillary was powerful because a lot of it was true. A lot of that stuff is true. This argument you're trying to make against Biden, it's never going to land because it's not true. It's not even close to true. And the more Trump goes down this path, the more his numbers go down. And then he just goes further down that path. Dude, you have Fox News. Fox News, the network that throws you softballs all day. They're like, okay, that's not, listen, bro, that's not, that's not really quite true. You're going to say the dude that wrote the crime bill, he was the architect of mass incarceration. Somehow that guy is, uh, you know, against the police and he's against law and order. The problem is he was too obsessed with that nonsense to the point where he was willing to criminalize nonviolent offenses. That's the problem. So in other words, the argument is fundamentally the opposite of what Trump is saying. The real argument, he could go out there and say, listen, I signed criminal justice reform. I signed the First Step Act. I actually did more to get innocent people out of prison compared to Biden. He put innocent people in prison. So I'm the one who's fighting for the people on this front. He could make that argument. He doesn't. He makes something up. Biden's far left and he wants to abolish the police. Joe Biden is a moderate Republican. That's what he is. So any argument trying to paint him as some sort of far left person, it's not going to work. And by the way, I get really sad thinking about this because if Bernie Sanders was the nominee, Bernie would be just as up on Trump as Biden is right now, if not more so. Why? Because we have a pandemic and we have an economic crisis, a COVID depression, and no, no president could override that. But on top of that, also the strategy is really stupid. This also wouldn't work against Bernie, by the way. 
<laughs> because he would say, oh, Bernie, far left, and all this stuff. And Bernie would just come out and say, there's a pandemic. Millions of people have lost their health care. I'm going to give them health care. What about you, Don? That's all he had to do. I'm for giving people $2,000 a month, universal basic income. How about you, Don? And then he's got no solid response. So Bernie would be just as up, if not more up, on Trump. It's not, this strategy is not going to work. And it's amazing to me that he can't readjust. Listen, I think first and foremost, what he would have to do in order to have a chance is substantively address COVID, which I think is actually too late for that now because he already messed up. How are you going to do every single day a COVID press conference and then you stop doing it. Now the virus is worse than it was early on, and you're still not doing a daily COVID press conference anymore. So when the virus was not as bad, you were co- talking about it every day. Now it's worse than ever, and you're nowhere to be found on it. You're basically saying, I hope people just forget about it. Do you not understand even just fake leadership would have done? Do you not get that? Look at Cuomo in New York. His approval rating is through the roof. And he did a terrible job with COVID. But it was just the appearance of leadership that made people go, oh, okay, looks like he's on top of it, relatively speaking. That's all you had to do. All Trump had to do was pretend to be leading on COVID. And on top of that, just give one lasting relief effort economically, and I think he would have won the election. If he led on COVID or pretended to lead on COVID and actually looked like he was in control of it, had some measures that mitigated how bad the numbers got, And then on top of that, let's say just a UBI for the duration of the crisis, that alone, I think he could have won the election. But because he hasn't substantively addressed these problems, the real world is just smacking people in the face relentlessly. And so now they're going anything but this guy, anything but this guy. So Trump, what he had to do was materially address um, the economic downturn and COVID. He had to do that. But beyond that, He could have just used the same playbook that he used against Hillary, against Biden. So not, oh, my God, he's so far left, because that's stupid. That's stupid. But he could have used the same, oh, you want to go back to the the status quo. Is that what you want to do? You want your jobs to get outsourced again? You want more stupid wars? Is that what you want to do? So he could have used that playbook. He's not even talking about corruption in regards to Joe Biden anymore. We thought, oh, my God. Trump is going to destroy Biden. He's just going to hammer away on the corruption in the same way that he hammered away on the Clinton Foundation corruption when it was Hillary. He's not touching corruption when it comes to Biden because he's too busy pretending like he's Antifa, which, of course, is ridiculous. So this is, oh, my God. You know Trump is in trouble when even Fox News can fact-check him on the spot. And he's got no response. Of course Biden didn't call for defunding the police. Of course he didn't do that. He's Joe Biden. And by the way, these guys, they don't even, they never want to engage with ideas and policies honestly. Because to actually engage with the idea of defund the police, we have to define it and know what people are talking about. And some of the strongest advocates of that position, when you hear them lay out exactly what they mean, it's not as extreme as it sounds. It's like it has a lot to do with building up support systems, community support systems that don't necessarily involve somebody with a gun showing up first and foremost. Could be, you know, psychological mental health experts showing up who their only tool is de-escalation, and this is how we fix problems. 
So it, the idea of defunding the police, they don't even bother to actually understand the best interpretation of that position and steel man their opponent and then debate it that way. No, they just use it as a caricature. That's what it is. And, you know, it's no surprise when he's that deep in his own bubble that he's down this much and he's continuing to go down. Guys, I see no signs of life from Trump. I'm almost ready to pound the gavel. This election is nearly over. And this is coming from a guy who said in 2016, I was one of the few people on the left who said Trump could definitely win because he was running an amazing campaign and Hillary's running a terrible campaign. This is not 2016. It's that simple. Okay, next. President Trump claimed he's actually not losing in the election polls. Okay. Um, And he went on to embarrass himself talking about the cognitive test he took. President, you'll be happy to know that Fox News has a new poll out today, and you're going to be the very first person to hear about it. In the national horse race, Joe Biden leads you by eight points, 49% to 41. That's, I think, three, four points slimmer than it was a month ago. And on the issues, people trust Biden more to handle the coronavirus by 17 points, on race relations by 21 points. And even on the economy, they trust Biden more by one point. I understand. You still have more than 100 days to this election. But at this point, you're losing. First of all, I'm not losing. Because those are fake polls. They were fake in 2016, and now they're even more fake. The polls were much worse in 2016. No, they weren't. They interviewed 22% Republican. Well, how do you do 22% Republican? You see what's going on. Uh, I have other polls that put me leading. We have polls where I'm leading. I have a poll where we're leading in every swing state. And I don't believe that you're, first of all, the Fox polls, whoever does your Fox polls, they're among the worst. They got it all wrong in 2016. They've been wrong on every poll I've ever seen. I I must tell you. No, I'm just telling you. And and let me me ask you this. So on the economy, so I've always led on the economy by a lot. I know, which is why I was surprised. Why can't put two sentences together? They wheel him out, he goes up, he repeats, he, they ask him questions, he reads a teleprompter, and then he goes back into his basement. You tell me the American people want to have that in an age where we're in trouble with other nations that are looking to do numbers on us. So let me ask you a direct question. No, I'm going to ask you a direct question about Joe Biden. Is Joe Biden senile? I don't want to say that. I say he's not competent to be president. To be president, you have to be sharp and tough and so many other things. If I may, sir, respectfully, in the Fox poll, they ask people, who is more competent? Who's got, whose mind is sounder? Biden beats you in that. Well, I tell you what, uh, let's take a test. Let's take a test right now. Let's go down. Joe and I will take a test. Let him take the same test that I took. Incidentally, I took the test, too, when I heard that you passed it. Yeah, how did it's you do it? Well, it's not the hardest test. No, but the it, last... It's a picture, and it's a last, and it's an element. No, no, no. You see, that's all misrepresentation. Well, that's what it was on the web. It's all misrepresentation, because, yes, the first few questions are easy, but I'll bet you couldn't even answer the last five questions. I'll bet you couldn't. They get very hard, the last five well, questions. Well, one of them was count back from 100 by 7. And let me tell you. Yeah. 
<laughs> you couldn't answer. You couldn't answer. All right, what's the question? Many of the questions. I'll get you the test. I'd like to give it. But right. I guarantee you that Joe Biden could not answer those questions. Okay. I don't know whether to laugh or cry. <laughs> you got the President of the United States bragging about passing this cognitive ability test, and the cognitive ability test is like a picture of an elephant, and it says, what is this? Come on, man, come on. I like when he says, I bet you couldn't even answer the last five questions, Chris. I bet you couldn't even answer them. It gets very, very difficult. And Chris is like, it says count back from 100 by 7. <laughs> We live in a bad movie. We live in a bad movie. Do you understand that? Man. And listen, the problem with Biden is not that, like, he wouldn't do okay on that test. The problem is I think he's he is gradually losing his mind, and it could be. I'm not a doctor, so I can't definitively say, like, early onset dementia. Um, But I don't think he's the same guy he was, even as recently in 2016. Go watch him talk in 2016, and he's whip smart. Now he's, he's just not. But again, that, the problem is not that, like, oh, if you give him that test, he wouldn't do fine on it. I'm sure he would. Um, it, the problem is just he's not, he's slower now than he was then. Um, so I don't even agree with Trump's assessment there. But also Trump himself is a moron, and that's why he's bragging about this thing, which looks phenomenally easy. Um, but so let's, Let's go back to some stuff he said early on in that clip. At one point he says, Biden can't speak. You think the American people want that? But really this, this reflects the ultimate rejection of Trump and like the culmination of all of the terrible things he's done in office because it's right, that's true. Biden can't speak well. But you know what? You can speak and everything you say is stupid. And so people go, I'd rather have this guy who's not speaking than the guy who every time he does speak pisses me off or makes things worse or pours fuel on the fire, exacerbates the problem. So that's really what's going on here. And that's why I said from early on, guys, when you have so many substantive problems in the country and you got this guy, you know, you give him more rope, he's going to hang himself. Why would Biden leave his basement? I told you, if I was running Biden's campaign, I'd be like, I don't, you're never leaving your basement. I, don't, I, wouldn't even, I probably wouldn't even have him do the occasional interview. I'd be like, no, 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 you're good. You're good. You're going to hide. You're going to hide until the election day. Let them whine. Let them cry. Let them yelp. Let them moan. But look at the polls, bitch. Who's winning, son? Exactly. Cry all you want. I don't care. He's going to win that way. Um, so now let's go to the, honestly, the scariest stuff there was the, the first thing he said. When he's asked about the polls, he says, point blank, I'm not losing their fake polls. I, I don't know how to say this any clearer, but that is immense bullshit. Like, that is just so wrong and not true. He even goes on to say, the polls were much worse for him in 2016. Not even close. So I'll show you. So when you look at Let's see which poll this is. This is the ABC Washington Post national poll in July of 2016. Okay? Hillary Clinton, 47%. Donald Trump, 43%. So 
Hillary was plus four percentage points at this point in the race in 2016. That same poll, National ABC Washington Post poll, in July of 2020, Biden, 55%, Trump, 40%. And two months ago, Biden was just plus 10. Now he's plus 15. Hillary, at this point in 2016, was plus four. Biden today is plus 15. It's just, it's total BS what he's saying. Now, beyond that, I could hear the objections now. Well, hold on. That's just one poll. It's a direct apples-to-apples comparison because it's this snapshot in time and it's the exact same poll. So whatever the methodology was back then, it's the same methodology today. So it's not like he could say, well, you know, back then you sampled more Republicans and this time you didn't. Nonsense. It's the exact same poll. The methodology is exactly the same. But put that aside, some people will say, yeah, but what about the averages? Well, like I explained on the last show, Biden in the average is up nine points. Now, that's before this new round of polls. There was one he was up 13. There's one he's up 15 in the new round of polls. So, you know, he could on average be up 10 or 11 now, Biden can. So Biden's up 10 or 11. And Hillary in the national average was up anywhere, depending on the time frame, two to four points. And every now and then, and I remember because I was sounding the alarm about it in 2016. Every now and then a poll would come out in 2016 where it would be like Trump plus two nationally. There would be like one poll per month where Trump would be like plus two, plus one, maybe even as much as plus three nationally. But there were a few polls every now and then, like once a month, that's like Trump leads nationally. The other thing is back then for uh, the swing states, there were always a couple swing states where Trump was winning. There was always a few where it's like, wow, interesting. So Trump's up there. And in the ones where he was down, he wasn't down by a lot. This time, it's, it's a Rapskies. Everywhere you look, it's like Biden, and it's Biden by giant margins. Um, now, I want to give you some more information from this poll that just came out, because you will really get a sense of just how absurd Trump's claim is. The idea that the polls are fake and they were way worse in 2016, I just showed you. They're absolutely not worse in 2016. He was way closer in 2016. But just the idea that they're fake, guys, even if you control for the same kind of like secret Trump vote, because last time in 2016, there was an argument of like, well, at least in some swing states, there was a contingent of voters who were pro-Trump who weren't necessarily reflected in the numbers. But even if you control for that factor in 2020, Biden still wins over 300 electoral votes. So um, listen to this. This is from a poll that just came out. Three and a half months ago, Biden and Trump were virtually even in how they would handle the pandemic. Um, In fact, it was actually Trump plus two back then. Today, Biden leads Trump on the issue by 20 points. 20 points. So just recently, they were even on how they would handle COVID, Trump with a slight edge. Now it's Biden by 20 points. 20. (laughs) That's insane. So in other words, the whole country is like, what is this guy doing? See, the thing is you can't override the 140,000 deaths and immense numbers of hospitalizations through force of will and pretending it's not happening or saying Biden's Antifa. That doesn't work. Um, When it comes to the economy, Trump is usually up 
massively on the economy. Usually the lead for Trump and any generic Republican on the economy is 15 to 20 points. Now it's almost a tie, two points up for Trump on the economy. Trump's overall approval rating, 39%. 39%. Now, he was still underwater when he won in 2016, but he was like at least 43%. And he was up against uh, uh, an opponent who was almost as disliked as him. Hillary had you know, maybe like a 45%, 46% approval rating leading into the election. But Biden is more popular than Hillary is, and Trump is less popular today than he was in 2016. All right, I got more for you. Disapproval is up for Trump in two of his key support groups. Disapproval is up 20 percentage points among, um, I I never know how to say this word. You're going to make fun of me. Rural, rural, rural Americans. (laughs) Disapproval is up 20 percentage points among them. Disapproval is up 12 percentage points among evangelical white Protestants. That's a cornerstone, a building block of Trump's base that he absolutely needs. Um, And even among Southerners, disapproval is up 18 points against Trump. More, Biden leads Trump by 26 points in being seen as having the better personality and temperament to serve as president. In a related finding... A vast 76% of Americans say Trump, in talking about people he disagrees with, quote, crosses the line in terms of what's acceptable. 50 points fewer, 26% say Biden does the same. 61% say Trump has done more to divide than unite the country, more than said about either of his two predecessors in office. When asked which candidates would do more to unite Americans, Biden leads by another wide margin, 57% to 33%. Biden leads by double digits on other personal attributes as well. Better understanding of the problems people like you face, plus 17 for Biden. Being more honest and trustworthy, plus 14 for Biden. Better representing your personal values, plus 12 for Biden. And having a better idea of what America should stand for, plus 10 for Biden. The only issue where Trump is even with Biden, he's not leading on anything, The only one where he's even is who's the stronger leader. It's 45-45 on that front. Biden is cleaning his clock. Cleaning his clock. Now, again, guys, you have to understand something. I'm a guy, I tweeted the videos before, and the videos are still out there. Right when we knew, right when we knew that it was going to be Hillary versus Trump, and even before that, I think, when all we knew was it was going to be Trump likely getting the nomination for the Republicans. I actually warned everybody, hey, if it's Trump versus Hillary, he can win. He might even be a slight favorite. And I was saying that based on how he was running his campaign and how weak of a campaign Hillary was running and everything. The stars were aligning. And he had a perfect strategy back then. Okay? And he still barely won even with a perfect strategy against a very unpopular opponent. This is nothing like 2016, and you can't just dismiss what I'm saying as like, oh, he's just an anti-Trump, you know, resistance guy, full stop. Like, I make no secret of the fact that I hate Trump, but I'm not letting that cloud my objective judgment when discussing this issue. So I'm going to say it right now. There is now a 95% chance that Joe Biden will beat Donald Trump. 90 5% chance. 
And the final fact I'll give you to explain how I'm so certain, did you know that never in modern American history has one candidate led another candidate for president and never been within the margin of error? or out, excuse me, outside of the margin of error. So in other words, we've never had an election where they poll, where they found that there wasn't at least a couple moments where it was at least a tie. It was a statistical tie where, you know, one candidate and the other candidate are within the, the margin of error of each other and they're neck and neck. Joe Biden has led this race every step of the way and he's always led by more than the margin of errors of error in the polls. That's never happened before in modern American history. And as we get closer to the election, Trump keeps going down in the polls because he can't just override a pandemic and an economic depression, which is what he's trying to do through force of will. He can't do it and ain't going to work. So Joe Biden is a 95% favorite to win the election. The only thing that could change that is basically a miracle. Donald Trump would need to pummel Joe Biden in every debate, which that is possible. But beyond that, you would need real serious material improvement for people starting right now. You would need COVID to somehow (laughs) go away. You would need a magical economic recovery that doesn't just mean the market bouncing back, but means helping actual people. Because right now, like I said, 32% of the country can't pay their rent, can't pay their mortgage. You can't have that be the case and then think you're going to win re-election. People are taking pay cuts across the board. You got 20% real unemployment. That's just, that can't stand. You're not, people are going to vote, people will vote for a ham sandwich against Trump in this scenario. So I think Biden's a 95% chance to win the election, because everything I'm seeing now, it is overwhelming. It is stunning. I've never seen crushing numbers like this before. So, and he's getting more and more desperate, and then he keeps going more and more down the wrong path, and he plummets even more. It's a vicious cycle, and I see no end in sight. All right, next. All right, let me do, this one is going to be on John Kasich. So I have a little bit of breaking news here for everybody. Just saw this right before I came on air. Apparently, John Kasich will be speaking at the Democratic National Convention in support of Biden. He's so anti-Trump that he's going to support Biden and speak on Biden's behalf at the DNC. So, there's a lot to say about this. I mean, first of all, let's just bring up what I think is a very interesting point, if not obvious, but this is a guy who, there were reports back in 2016 when Trump locked up the Republican nomination, 
that Trump's team actually approached John Kasich and asked John Kasich, hey, number one, would you like to be VP? Number two, if yes, would you like to effectively run the country while Trump goes around the country and does his rallies? So in other words, that was a little bit of a signal of like, the thing Trump really likes doing is campaigning. Governing, who knows if he has, at the time, who knew if he had any ability to do it? And, you know, he probably wouldn't be good at it, doesn't really have strong ideological commitments. So why not let a serious adult person govern John Kasich? And, you know, Trump will go out there and be the, the rally for America guy, the campaigner in chief. Now, John Kasich reportedly turned that down um, because he doesn't like Trump. So to the extent that um, he's anti-Trump, good. I think, I think that's great. You know, it would be better to have uh, more people who are Republicans or on the right say, yeah, I'm not with this guy, because so much of what he's doing is just inexcusable. The abysmal failure on COVID, the, the new economic depression that we're in. So insofar as he's just anti-Trump, good. That, that's a positive thing. Here's why this is annoying. The same people who blocked Nina Turner from speaking at the DNC in 2016 and instead had Mike Bloomberg, the stop-and-frisk billionaire, speak. Those people are going to turn around and welcome John Kasich with open arms. Well, for those of you who don't know, John Kasich is massively anti-choice, against abortion. He's, he was against marriage equality. He just recently said, no, our anti-discrimination protections do not include transgender people. So he's an anti-transgender bigot who's openly in favor of discriminating against them. No problem with that whatsoever. Does not want anti-discrimination laws to protect the trans community. And he's also incredibly anti-union. Now, he, you know, he's a moderate Republican in the context of today's Republican Party, but that's not still a pretty far-right character. Now, would I be like, okay, you know what, fine, it's cool, if John Kasich was signing up for a left agenda? Yes, I'm in favor of changing people's minds. I'm in favor of converting people so that we, we can build a coalition and become successful and implement our ideas. The problem with this John Kasich news is that ain't nobody changing John Kasich's mind about Dickie McGee's acts. John Kasich is acknowledging rightly that Joe Biden is a moderate Republican. So the issue with this story is that this is a new acknowledgement that, well, the Democratic Party of 2020 is just the Republican Party of 1980. They're for, you know, tax cuts for the rich. They're for deregulation of Wall Street. They're for endless wars in the military-industrial complex. That's why John Kasich is fine with endorsing Biden and advocating for him. Not because Joe Biden convinced John Kasich to go left on the grounds, on his grounds. No, it's because fundamentally Joe Biden agrees with the right and agrees with John Kasich and agrees with establishment Republicans. So that's why this is an issue. Everybody knows I have, I have no problem with building bridges wherever we can build bridges on our terms. That's the key point. So Bernie Sanders working with Mike Lee, an otherwise disgusting far-right winger, but he worked with Mike Lee to end the genocide in Yemen. Sign me up for that all day. 
Why? Because we're not compromising left-wing values in the process of working with somebody. But Kasich standing up for Biden, there's no standing up for left-wing values here. Everybody just recognizes that Joe Biden's a moderate Republican. And so he's like, great, so the Democratic Party is like the old-school Republican Party. Sign me up because I'm, I'm a Republican. That's what John Kasich is doing here. And that's why this is frustrating. The same party that put a middle finger up to Nina Turner is welcoming John Kasich with open arms. What does that tell you? What does that tell you? It tells you they got no interest in Nina Turner's politics. They got no interest in the populist left. They got no interest in social democracy. They got no interest in raising wages and ending wars. They got no interest in ending the drug war. I can go on and on. They have no interest in Nina Turner, who's right about virtually everything, and they have plenty of interest in John Kasich, who's wrong about virtually everything. By the way, the same people who are going to applaud John Kasich speaking at the DNC gave Bernie hell for acknowledging that the most popular podcaster on the planet, Joe Rogan, endorsed him. John Kasich is only a quadrillion times worse than Joe Rogan. Not even close. Not even close. Joe Rogan is for universal health care. Joe Rogan is for ending the wars. Joe Rogan is for a living wage. These are not things that John Kasich supports. He doesn't support them at all. John Kasich is way to the right of Joe Rogan. But Joe Rogan is unacceptable, and we need to cancel Bernie for just acknowledging that Joe Rogan endorsed him. But John Kasich, just, just, just shut up and welcome him with open arms, no questions asked. Again, guys, I want to be clear. Let's say Bernie Sanders won the nomination and John Kasich signed up for the Bernie Sanders agenda. I'd be like, cool, no doubt, that's what's up. Because he would be agreeing with left values, our values. Him going and promoting Biden is simply because he knows Biden agrees with right-wing values. That's why this is disgusting. And the hypocrisy of the people who would slam Joe Rogan, who would not allow Nina Turner to speak at the DNC, but now they're like, yes, John Kasich. You guys couldn't be more clear about where your politics stand. And I'm just simply tired of the neoliberal corporatist war hawks. I can't stand them. I can't stand them. And they have tried and succeeded at taking over the establishment of the Democratic Party. These guys welcome Bill Kristol, who's a war criminal, David Frum, who's a war criminal, with open arms. They welcome John Kasich, who's a deregulator and a corporatist. They welcome him with open arms. It's the likes of Nina Turner that they say hell no to. It's a party that would much rather have John Kasich front and center than me or Nina Turner. That's the problem with this. You'll always see me advocate for working with people, even who we vehemently disagree with on other issues. You will always see me advocate working with people who agree on the specific issues where you agree, because I think that's obvious. I think that's common sense. But John Kasich is going to Biden because Biden's going to do stuff John Kasich wants, not the other way around. So, this is, this is who they are. In this country, we have the Republican Party and we have 
the diet Republican Party. Those are your choices. Okay, next. I'm sorry, I actually forgot I have one more with uh, Chris Wallace and Trump. So let me play that for you. Trump was asked if he'll accept the election results. And he's also asked how he'll view his presidency when it's done. His answer is amazing. In general, not talking about November, are you a good loser? I'm not a good loser. I don't like to lose. I don't lose too often. I don't like to lose. Are you gracious? You don't know until you see. It depends. I think mail-in voting is, is going to rig the election. I really do. Uh, Are you suggesting that you might not accept the results of the election? I have to see. Look, Hillary Clinton asked me the same thing. No, I asked you the same no, thing in the debate. There is a tradition in this country, in fact, one of the prides of this country, is the peaceful transition of power and that no matter how hard fought a campaign is, that at the end of the campaign that the loser concedes to the winner, not saying that you're necessarily going to be the loser or the winner, but that the loser concedes to the winner and that the country comes together in part for the good of the country. Are you saying you're not prepared now to commit to that principle? What I'm saying is that I will tell you at the time. I'll keep you in suspense. Well, okay? Chris, and you know what? She's the one that never accepted I it. Agree. She never accepted her loss. And she looks like can, a you give a, can you give them a direct answer? You will accept the election? I have to see. Look, you, I have to see. Oh, I'm not going to just say yes. I'm not going to say no. And I didn't last time either. Whether it's in 2021 or 2025, how will you regard your years as president of the United States? I think I was very unfairly treated. Uh, from before I even won, I was under investigation by a bunch of thieves, crooks. Uh, it was an illegal investigation. But what about the, Russian, good, what about the good part, sir? No, no, I want to go this. I have done more than any president in history in the first three and a half years, and I've done it suffering through investigations where people have been, General Flynn, where people have been so unfairly treated. The Russia hoax, it was all a hoax. The Mueller scam, it was all a scam. It was all false. I made a bad decision on, one bad decision, Jeff Sessions, and now I feel good because he lost overwhelmingly in the great state of Alabama. Here's the bottom line. I've been very unfairly treated, and I don't say that as paranoid. I've been very, everybody says it. It's going to be interesting to see what happens, but there's tremendous evidence right now as to how unfairly treated I was. This is, this is comedic, man. I said in a previous segment, I think there's a 95% chance now that Joe Biden is going to win. And that, that might even be the low number. It might be more than that. Because in the most recent poll, Biden's up 15 percentage points nationally. You know how much Hillary was up this time in 2016? Four. Biden's up 15. And then when you look at the swing states, it's even worse. And when you look at the specific issues, Biden is up, is just crushing Trump in virtually every single category. Because of stuff like this. Hey, Don, I don't know if you noticed, there's a pandemic and a depression happening. And look at the answers he's giving to questions. He was asked, how will you regard your presidency when it's over, whether it's, you know, in this upcoming election or the one after? How will you regard your presidency? His answer is, I was very unfairly treated. I've done more than anybody in history. Okay, but, like, what about the specifics? What about the details? What exactly have you done that's more than anybody in history? What exactly have you done? What have you done? 
What have you done? What have you done? Go ahead. I'll wait. I'm listening. I was very unfairly treated. The Russia hoax. Jeff Sessions was recused himself, and so, but I'm happy he lost his election. Look at how petty and narcissistic this man is. He can't even pretend to give a list of accomplishments. He couldn't even pretend. How will you regard your presidency? Well, you know, uh, before COVID came along, we had an amazing economy, probably the best economy ever. We had unemployment down at nearly 3%. It was really something special to see. You know, the other thing I did is I made sure that I killed the Trans-Pacific Partnership to protect people's jobs. I care most about protecting people's jobs. I signed the First Step Act, which is freeing unfairly imprisoned people. And Joe Biden helped imprison those people unfairly. I freed those people. It's really incredible. It's really amazing. Um, You know, I made peace. People said it couldn't be done, but I made peace with North Korea. I brought peace to this to this world. Like I'm trying. This is if he was remotely serious as a human being. If he wasn't an idiot, he has these little things he could point to and say, "Yes, this, this, and this," and then just hammer that home. Here's what I've done, which is wonderful. Instead of that, he goes right to uh, you know, pity poor me. I'm I'm treated so unfairly. Everybody's against me but I'm so great anyway. You can't just say that. You have to explain how and why in the specific. He doesn't do that. He is, he is so screwed. He's so screwed. There's not a thing. I don't even care for the most hardcore Trump supporter. You watch that and you go, oh, this is sad. This is sad. You didn't even have a list of five things you could you know, hit if, when you're asked that question. You didn't have a list of anything. You went right to, I'm so unfairly treated. You know who's unfairly treated? The person who lost their job because there's a pandemic and a depression. You know who's unfairly treated? The person who had to take a 25% pay cut as a result of what's happening now with the economy. You know who's unfairly treated? I don't know, maybe the 40% of small businesses that are going to go belly up as a result of COVID and the depression. The 40% of child care centers which are going to go belly up, which is another national crisis that we never talk about. The 32% of Americans who can't pay their rent or their mortgage. 32%. 32%. The 28 million people, or a report just came out, 28 million people could be homeless within a, a year or two now as a result of what's happening. 28 million. 28 million. You know what the number is now homelessness? I think it's about 600,000 people. 28 million. That's more than the population of a bunch of our giant cities combined. What about them? Are they unfairly treated? You tell me, Don. Are they unfairly treated? How about any of the 130, 140,000 people who died from COVID-19? Are they unfairly treated? Were they unfairly treated when you refused to do a mask mandate early on? Was that them being unfairly treated? Talking about how he's unfairly treated. Look around. Read the room. Every time he talks, he plummets more and more in the polls because of stuff like this. The final thing he says. I really think mail-in voting is going to rig the election. See, he's already getting his excuses in. Get your excuses in early. Let's go. I think mail-in voting is going to rig the election. My favorite story about Trump discussing mail-in voting. There was a special election that happened relatively recently. There were just a handful of elections. Trump goes out there in a press conference, or he's answering questions from the media. He may have been in like some sort of meeting or whatever. And he goes, you know, this mail-in voting, there's a lot of rigging. It's very corrupt. You know, people with the mail-in voting not good. It's not good. They could rig it. It's not a good thing. Really bad. And we had uh, two great elections yesterday where Republicans won. 
Those were, the, those were mail-in elections because of the pandemic. Those were mail-in elections. Saying mail-in voting rigs it and then, oh, isn't it great that all Republicans uh, won in the election yesterday? Wait, you just said it's rigged. So did the Republicans rig it for them to win? Oh, no, no, it's only when the Democrats win, then it's rigged. But when the Republicans rig, even when it's by mail-in, which I say rigs it, no, 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 that count, it only counts when it's Democrats. That's when it's rigged. That's when it's fake. When Republicans win, even if, the, if it's the thing I say is rigged, it's not rigged because the Republicans win. Do you see how self-serving this idiot is? Do you see how he just twists stuff all the time and flips it to try to, you know, make his case and make himself look good and protect the Republicans? There's not an honest bone in this dude's body, man. He is so full of shit, it's coming out of his ears and his eyeballs. So take note of all this stuff. This is disgusting. And now, it, when he loses, which is a lot more likely than saying if at this point, we better make sure we get his ass out of there. Because he's going to cry and he's going to whine like the little bitch he is. When, you know, you should have done something to stop the pandemic, something that worked. And you should have done something to prevent the depression or at least ameliorate it if you really wanted to stay in that office. All right, next. So Kanye West held a rally in South Carolina, and um, it was out of this world. Now, listen, I actually struggled with exactly how do I cover this? Because on the one hand, you know, listen, I'm human. You're human. I kind of want to point and laugh and be like, this is ridiculous. But on the other hand, man, there's really something wrong with Kanye. Like, I think he has some serious psychological issues. So I struggled. I don't know exactly how to deal with this. I don't know if it's insensitive to, like, laugh about it and point and say, oh, look at this, you know, freak show that's going on, essentially. Um, And I haven't really resolved this in my own head. I don't know how I'm going to cover it. But whatever comes out, comes out. I'll try my best to be as sensitive as humanly possible. But here's Kanye holding a political rally in South Carolina. Now, this was so poorly planned that... He doesn't even have a microphone. He doesn't even have a microphone. And he's on stage, and there are a bunch of people standing around, and he just rambles. Now, th- listen, Trump, I'm not, Trump actually does a similar thing in that he'll ramble like crazy in his rallies, and it worked for him. But this is on another level. This is like, this is disturbing in many ways. So here are just a few clips of his rally.
Tubman didn't really free the slaves on the Underground Railroad, that she took some slaves and made them work for somebody else. That last part that you saw is he says that his dad wanted to abort him, his mom saved his life, and uh, he says he, I guess he originally wanted to abort his daughter, and Kim Kardashian said no. And so they had the baby, and now he's happy he had the baby. He's crying. He said, I almost killed my daughter. Um, th- see, this is just uncomfortable. Like, I'm, I don't, I feel no inclination to, like, laugh or have fun with this. This is just, you know, sad to see. Um, he was using that point in service of making an anti-abortion argument, just so everybody understands. He says uh, at the beginning that whenever he's around people, they always become more prosperous. He wants to meet with George Soros on making homeless shelters. Then he starts talking about his personal financial deals. He talks about, you know, I I have a deal with Adidas, and I give them a 15% royalty. They don't give me a 15% royalty. You know, this made me a billionaire. He compares himself to Moses and says when God calls Moses, he has to free his people. That's presumably him talking about his presidential run. That's what he's doing, trying to free the people. Um, And my favorite part is when he says, freedom comes from you not loading up the pornography or taking the Percocet. (laughs) Listen, on that one, I have to dissent, good sir. I do believe freedom includes (laughs) freedom to download the pornography and to pop that Percocet, dog. Um, So he kind of flipped the meaning of it there. But yeah, listen, uh, all jokes aside, come on, man. Like, this is, it's kind of wild to me that, like, he's clearly not taking the medicine that he should be taking. And if I'm not mistaken, hasn't he admitted at some point that he's, like, massively bipolar or something? And I guess he doesn't like to take the meds because of how it makes him feel. But, like, dude this is what it looks like when you're not taking your meds and it is genuinely disturbing. And I really hope he gets the help that he needs because this is, 
this is not good. This is not good. This is like this is like somebody going through a manic state, and it's very clear to see. You know, I have um, my grandmother on my dad's side, who's no longer with us. She hasn't been with us for a long time, um, but she was diagnosed as as manic depressive, I believe is the term they used to use. I don't know if they use it anymore. But yeah, that's it's a terrifying thing because it peop they appear very erratic and very hyper in bursts and then the opposite will happen too where they'll you know want to totally hide away and not be around anybody and and it's just it's always extremes and you know they genuinely appear incredibly psychologically unstable that's what we're seeing here with Kanye West and I'm not a doctor okay I originally wanted to actually major in psychology just so everybody understands obviously I went the you know root of political science but, you know, I've taken plenty of courses in psychology, and so it was something that I was very heavily interested in. And, um, I, but it doesn't take somebody with frickin' training or anything to notice that something's off. And I really hope that somebody can sit him down and get through to him and, you know, basically get him the help that he needs. But my guess is that, you know, he'll, he'll never really consistently end up taking the medicine that he should be taking because usually people who are like this, he hates the feeling of being on the medicine. He feels zombified. He wants to, like, engage his every indulgence. And this is what happens. you got a guy who's running for president. And he doesn't know what the hell he's saying, what the hell he's running on. We went through, when he launched his, uh, his platform, he spoke to Forbes and went through his platform. It was a mess. It was a total mess. There were reports that he was dropping out recently, but then a couple days later they were like, actually, no, he did file to run in certain states. Now he's doing rallies. By the way, I don't know how many people in there were wearing masks, but, you know, dangerous to be in a room with COVID with all these people. He says he already had it, but what about other people? Like, okay, this, it's just, it's all too much. But you know what? It's crazy because this is so in line with 2020. Like, this is on the list of things that happened in 2020, which are just mind-blowing and depressing and sad. And, like, this doesn't even crack the top five or ten. Like, so much is going on that we can't wrap our minds around that this is just like, when I saw the news, I was like, yeah, sure, why not? Of course, Kanye's running. <laughs> like, what are you going to do? Duh. Obviously, that's happening. Um, so, get some help, man. Um, I could, and I could have played you a million parts of this, of this rally. The whole thing was a mess, but, you know, I just picked these two parts randomly. Um, the Harriet Tubman one is the one that really went viral, but... It's just, it's very strange to see this. Okay, let me take a break. When we come back, I got Ken Klippenstein broke a huge story coming out of Portland. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back.
I am back, motherfucker. All right, everybody. I am back, I am back, I am back. Okay, so... I still got a lot to talk about. You know, everybody's complaining about how hot it is outside. I don't get it. I do not mind the heat at all. We've uh, discussed this at length on Kyle and Corin, but I'm a big fan of it needs to be cold inside, but hot outside. When it's, when it's warm or hot inside, I, don't, I hate it because it feels like the air is like stagnant and not moving, and I don't like that feeling. But when I'm outside, I don't care if it's 90 degrees, if there's like a little bit of a breeze blowing, that 90 degrees does not feel like 90 degrees to me. It doesn't, doesn't feel uncomfortable. Even if I'm sweating in it and everything, it just doesn't feel uncomfortable to me. I'd rather have 90 degrees outside than 45 degrees, for sure. I know a lot of people think that's crazy, but when it's warm out, you know, you could go outside and do stuff and I think we're supposed to, there's something about us that we're supposed to be in nature. I'm convinced of it because I always just feel so much better when I'm outside getting some sun and all that. Anyway, um, all right, where was I? We just spoke about Kanye. Now let's go to the Ken Klippenstein story because this is crazy. So Ken Klippenstein broke uh, a very scary story. This is in The Nation magazine. As unmarked feds snatch protesters off the streets in Portland, memo leaked to me shows they'll be deployed indefinitely and in undisclosed locations with drones on standby to assist as needed. Now, this was a fear from quite a while ago. As soon as we started using drones overseas, everybody said, well, hold on now. What's to stop the U.S. government from using drones domestically? What's to stop them? Are they going to draw some sort of arbitrary moral line in their own minds and say, well, we won't use it domestically, but overseas, of course, we'll use it. We knew that at some point it would come here. Now, you know, I'm sure they'd argue, well, this isn't military-capable drones, but it's for spying effectively. But my response to that is, isn't that just as bad? We're all cool. Are we just supposed to accept that there are drones that may be spying on American citizens without a warrant? Are we just all supposed to go, oh, that's reasonable. That seems to me to be a clear violation of the Fourth Amendment. Protection from unreasonable search and seizure. That's an unreasonable search if I've ever heard it. You know, it all started with the Patriot Act. Well, probably started before that as well, but the ignoring of our rights. And now we have a situation where you could have drones used domestically. We shouldn't even be using them overseas, but drones domestically. And who knows how long it will be until they are military capable. You know, if there's like some sort of high-speed car chase or something, you don't think that at some point in the future there might be an armed drone that launches a missile or two? I could easily see that happening because every other dystopian nightmare 
thing has come to fruition. So why would, it, why would this one not come to fruition? Now, beyond that, guys, we really have unmarked federal agents in Portland abducting American citizens off the streets because they're protesting. Now, listen, as always, everybody who watches this show knows I'm not an advocate of violent protests or riots. I disagree with that on moral grounds and on ethical grounds and also on strategic grounds. So I would never defend, if there's a, a protest that gets violent, I'm not going to defend that and act like, hey, that's okay. But what we're talking about in this situation is unmarked federal agents kidnapping peaceful protesters. That's what all the reports are. Unmarked federal agents snatching protesters off the street in Portland. And there's a bit, it's been pretty thoroughly documented to this point. Now, we learned that, indeed, the, the federal agents, it was actually Border Patrol. So why is Border Patrol not at the border? What are they doing in Portland? Well, um, apparently this was a special task force that was created by the Department of Homeland Security in response to Trump's executive order his executive order protecting statues and monuments where he says, hey, you get 10 years in jail if you deface a monument in any way, shape, or form. Well, now we have a situation, excuse me, we have a situation where this is a real crisis of freedom of speech. See, this is what drives me crazy, and I'm sure it drives a lot of you guys crazy as well. But, guys, we could have the conversation about annoying college students you know, on campus all the time, creating their safe spaces or blocking speakers or whatever. But this is a real threat to the First Amendment. When you have unmarked federal agents that are like a paramilitary, they look like a paramilitary, Trump's thugs, when they're abducting peaceful protesters, what do you think that is? That is nothing but a violation of the First Amendment and freedom of speech and free protest. And now you understand why Noam Chomsky was always so immensely concerned about this issue and why he was always at the forefront of it. Is because what he understands, which a lot of people who are short-sighted, what they don't see, is that restrictions on freedoms, it'll always be targeted against the left. You want to know why? Because the left actually threatens power centers. And when you're questioning orthodoxy and threatening power centers, they'll do everything they can to suppress you to censure you, to stop you from doing that. And so now you have peaceful protesters being abducted in the streets by federal agents, the most wanton violation of the First Amendment and free speech and free protest I've ever seen in my life. And by the way, I hear none of the free speech warriors say anything on the proper side of this issue. If anything, they're, defend they're bootlickers and they're defending the unmarked federal agents. The unmarked federal agents. It's amazing. This stuff is absolutely amazing. This is on the streets in the United States of America in 2020. I, I, it's happening day by day. We slip further and further into a nightmare. Whether it's the pandemic or the depression or the endless wars or the reality star president. And now we have unmarked federal agents snatching peaceful protesters off the streets in Portland. I'm not sure if they have. They may have. I'm not sure. But 
the ACLU definitely needs to get involved here because this is a true instance of a violation of the First Amendment. And um, I think the Portland mayor is stepping up or something. Like, they're trying to fight back against the Fed's overreach here. But it is as disturbing as it gets. All right, next. An MSNBC host had an interesting little change of heart here. This is Joanne Reed, and she says the following. Now, let me read you the Ayanna Presley tweet first. So Joanne Reed is responding to that, quote tweeting that. Ayanna Presley said, explain to me how you could live through the COVID-19 crisis and not support Medicare for all. There's no doubt that in any just and decent society, COVID testing, treatment, and vaccines, when we have one, should be free. So Ayanna Presley is 100% correct there. You know, I do think it's a fair criticism to say, well, listen, you supported Elizabeth Warren in the presidential primary. Her plan is totally ambiguous, and it's not really Medicare for all, but you supported her over the person who was clearly advocating Medicare for all and not flinching in that. So that is a fair criticism of Ayanna Presley. However, ha- having said that, I, I welcome with open arms Ayanna Presley to this position. Now, Joanne Reed said the following, I will admit to being a past Medicare for All skeptic with a lot of questions about what happens to union-negotiated PPO plans, etc. Though a good friend whose family is a GM family in Flint told me she would far prefer Medicare for All. I can't think of one good reason today to keep the current system. Now, listen, I always want to incentivize people to change their mind for the better. Because that's the whole goal of doing what I'm doing and of trying to grow a movement. So I would not solely attack her here. I want to say, great, thank you, Joanne Reed. Now, you know, hopefully Rachel Maddow, Chris Hayes, every MSNBC host, every CNN host for that matter, I hope everybody, every Fox News host comes out and says, you know what, this is uh, obvious. It's a no-brainer, Medicare for all. Because then what would happen is, It would reflect in their coverage if they really had the change of heart. And you would see the stories would be from the angle of, oh, we have actual answers here. You know what I mean? Like there are actual answers where we have tens of millions of people now are hemorrhaging away their health insurance. So the solution is look at how every other developed country does it. Just copy them. Just copy them. Everybody's covered. No out-of-pocket costs. You're covered, full stop. That's it. We take our tax money and put it towards endless war and Wall Street bailouts. Other developed countries cover everybody with health care. Just do that. It's very simple. So I'm happy that she's doing this. However, however, you knew there had to be a however in there. She did spend the entire primary season, like, unfairly, unjustly, and viciously bashing the one guy who was leading on this issue. And this is what drives me crazy, is that there were all these terrible arguments, these smear arguments used against Bernie Sanders and all of his supporters. You know the Bernie bro myth. They're racist. They're sexist. They're everything bad in the book and so on and so forth. And but it wasn't even just that. It was also on these issues. On the issues like Medicare for all and free college, like these are things that attracted immense scrutiny. And. I mean, 
even if we're being kind to Joanne Reed here and we say she's an, a, an incredibly honest actor, let's say, for argument's sake, how did you not see through all of those arguments that were being used against Bernie on Medicare for All? How did you not know immediately that they're bullshit? And I, I mean that seriously. I mean that sincerely. Because everything that was tried to use, everything that they tried to use against it, was just clearly a health insurance company talking point that has no merit whatsoever if you did even the bare minimum amount of research. Like this point about what, what about the union contracts? Hold on. Medicare for all means everybody in the country is covered. It's free at the point of service. And everything is covered. So effectively, Medicare for all is saying, take those you know, supposedly awesome union health care plans and give it everybody in the country. That's the idea of Medicare for all. But somehow this argument about what about the union plans was used in service of making the point that, hey, maybe other people should have terrible health care and the unions can keep having their good health care. How do you not see up front how ridiculous an argument that is? How do you not see it? Now, it took a pandemic for her to come to this position, but now I would just ask her humbly, please, for the love of God, treat candidates who are really for this issue coming up sincerely, genuinely, kindly. Understand where this perspective is coming from. Understand why oftentimes people on the left like to put front and center the issues that should unite us all as working people. Issues like Medicare for All, like free college, like unions, like a living wage, like an infrastructure deal. We put these front and center because they're an issue, this is an issue that impacts everybody in the country. This is an issue that all working people probably have a bad experience with. And we want to fix it. We desperately want to fix it. But instead, when you lead on an issue like this, you get smeared because there's a tremendous amount of money that's put into propaganda against these positions. And unfortunately, that's the role the media plays. Listen, you got Fox News. Everybody understands, clearly, clearly. Everybody understands that Fox News is the propaganda arm of the Republican Party and Donald Trump. That's a given. You say that to Joanne Reed. She'll be like, duh, obviously. But what many people refuse to admit is that CNN and MSNBC, more MSNBC, they're the propaganda arm of the Democratic Party. Now, they might say, but yeah, I think the Democratic Party is correct. Well, that's, that's why you were hired, because you think the Democratic Party is correct. And more importantly, it's the leadership. It's the elitists in the Democratic Party. And they're all against Medicare for All. You want to know why, Joy? Because they take money from for-profit health insurance companies. And they take money from Big Pharma. And they have a reason to protect the status quo in the system. Because they want more money when they run their re-election campaign. So you have corrupt people with a corrupt ideology defending a corrupt status quo. And for a long time, you carried water for them. And you smeared the guy who was not corrupt and was not beholden to those industries. You smeared the guy who was proposing the solutions. And he was, you know, it was implied he was racist or sexist or unserious or a, a mean old man. When really he was mean because he should have been mean because the system is screwing everybody. The system 
is leading to medical bankruptcies. Welcome to the obvious position that the United States should catch up to the rest of the developed world and have Medicare for all. Right now, according to the Commonwealth Fund, we're ranked 11th out of 11 when it comes to developed nations and healthcare. Thank you for recognizing we should maybe copy the people who are number one on that list. I'm a simple guy, man. I'm, I'm as simple as it gets. I'm an empiricist, first and foremost. Okay, let's do something that works. Well, how do we know what works? Look around the world and see what works. <laughs> this isn't fucking rocket science. It's not rocket science. So you look around the world, you go, oh, look, the number one healthcare system. I think it's varied. Sometimes it was France. Sometimes it was the UK. Uh, it's been, you know, it's gone back and forth. But just pick one of those systems. Let's copy it. And that's how we have much better health outcomes. And healthcare would be a right. Thank you for finally coming to that position. But for the love of God, don't smear the people who are unapologetically running on that and advocating for that. Because... Unfortunately, the outsider leftists take a bunch of shit from the right, take a bunch of shit from the center, and take a bunch of shit from the Democratic leadership. And um, these are the people who are advocating the real solutions. And I sincerely hope that this is a real change of heart from Joanne Reed here. I really do. Because then it would reflect in her coverage and she would start advocating more for Medicare for all moving forward. But, you know, it sure is mighty convenient that you happen to help destroy the campaign of the person who is the most staunch advocate of it. And now you turn around and say, well, it turns out he was right. By the way, it turns out he was right about uh, everything. (laughs) Every single issue we have in society, which is now being exacerbated and highlighted as a result of the pandemic, Bernie Sanders had solutions for all those things. And he was scoffed and he was, he was mocked. And everybody goes, oh, my God, oh, yeah, social democracy, Bernie Sanders, oh, my God, yes, it would be great during a pandemic. Please, for the love of God, moving forward, advocate for these positions aggressively. Hold Democratic politicians accountable. Force them to be on the right side of this. But you never know with joy. In a year or two, she might say that time-traveling hackers got into her Twitter and made this pro-Medicare for all tweet. All right, next. The Washington football team is changing their name. And, um, you know, in the wake of the George Floyd protest, there's now this massive corporate effort to have other companies do the same. And there's a reason for this. The reason is there are real injustices in this country and with this system. And, um, you know, Somebody like me, and I think most people, would like to substantively address these problems. But what you get from corporate America is they don't don't really care about substantively addressing it. Oh, but they will give you a heaping dose of nonsense symbolism. So we've seen a lot of that recently, whether it's, you know, Aunt Jemima, Uncle Ben. There were, the Golden Girls had some episodes pulled down because in one of the episodes the girls were wearing, um, like, these mud face masks or something and and so i guess hulu or whoever looked at that and they were like that could maybe be misinterpreted as blackface pull it down and so they pulled it down and by the way every time they do something like this they they wait and look around for applause like that's the whole point 
<laughs> they're like, okay, let's try to be super woke, and then they do something silly like that, and then they look around and go, you guys like us now? Do we get our social brownie points now? And it's, just, it's so insufferable. It's so insufferable. And um, there, are there instances of symbolic things that do matter? Well, yeah, I think, I think there are some symbolic things that do matter. For instance, I don't think on any public land, federal or state, you should fly a Confederate flag. Very simply, because the whole point of that Confederate flag, that wasn't even the original Confederate flag. The Confederate flag that you and I think of as the Confederate flag, that, was literally, that literally came to prominence during the Civil Rights Movement as a giant middle finger to desegregation. So the whole point of that was, hey, let's say black people need to know their place. So when you have public land, that means effectively you have black Americans funding the flying of a flag that represents their official oppression. So I, that's unacceptable. That's beyond unacceptable. Take down the Confederate flag on all public land, okay? Private land, you can't do anything about it. That's part of freedom. If somebody wants to be the most hateful asshole on the planet, they have every right to do so. There's just nothing we can do about that. But my point is, are there symbolic things that matter? Of course, of course. But do the symbolic things ever matter as much as the really substantive things? No. And what do I mean by that? What do I mean by substantive things? Well, we have a racist drug war in this country. But the drug war is overwhelmingly used to disproportionately crack down on communities of color. That's, they admitted that. The Nixon White House admitted that. They said, yeah, we wanted to take the hippie white people, but the people of color, more importantly, and criminalize the lifestyle because we knew they'd never be our political allies. They admitted it. So that's why you see a situation where black people and white people smoke weed at a similar rate. Black people are four times more likely to get arrested for that. White people are more likely to sell drugs. Black people are more likely to get arrested for selling drugs. You have gigantic disparities when it comes to um, implementation of the death penalty and also uh, mandatory minimums. Now, again, if some people say, well, what are you talking about? It's just differences in crimes. No. When you have the same crime, it is much more likely a black person gets a harsher sentence. And it's much more likely a black person or a white person commit the same crime. The black person is more likely to get the death penalty. These are the real substantive problems in this country. See, that, see the point is, when you talk about systemic racism, it means you have to address the system. So in other words, no amount of stupid, neoliberal, corporatist, identitarian bullshit is going to change anything. So in other words, Robin D'Angelo and her white fragility hustle, that's nothing but a scam. It's a way for Robin D'Angelo and all of her acolytes to get wealthy by teaching these seminars and telling white people, hey, you know you're a piece of shit, right? You know you better shut up and just treat the black people as if they're better than you, and you need to acknowledge you're inherently racist. So, and by the way, the studies show that approach, the neoliberal corporate identitarian nonsense, if anything, it creates a backlash effect, and it makes white people more reactionary. You want to know why? Because if you tell somebody, hey, you're a piece of shit because of your skin color, turns out they get a little defensive. That's what happens. That's what happens. So anyway, now we have, you're probably wondering, what the hell, why is Trader Joe's over Kyle's shoulder? Well, now we have, you know, a new front in this battle over symbolism. The Hill reports the following. An online petition calling on Trader Joe's to remove its racist branding and packaging from its stores has gathered more than 1,500 signatures as of Sunday. The Change.org petition created two weeks ago requests the grocery store chain to follow other food companies' move, moves to adjust their branding and packaging to avoid racial stereotypes. 
The, the petition specifically calls out the international food items that are named Trader Ming's, Trader Jose, uh, Trader Giotto's, Arabian Joe, and Trader Josan, jo Josan, however you say that. Um, quote, we demand that Trader Joe's remove racist branding and packaging from its stores, the petition reads. The grocery chain labels some of its ethnic food with modifications of Joe that belies a narrative of exoticism that perpetuates harmful stereotypes. Uh, Briannis Bedell, 17, a rising high school senior, uh, told the New York Times that the products are racist because they exoticize other cultures and present Joe as the default normal. So Trader Joe's immediately was like, okay, fine, uh, we'll get rid of all that and we'll just rename the packaging, we'll call it all Trader Joe's or whatever. So now, listen, I don't want to do what the right does, which is oftentimes they like, they blow up these issues as if it's a bigger thing than it really is. So in other words, you only had 1,500 signatures as of Sunday on this. So somebody created this and only 1,500 people signed it. Guys, I could, I could, you know, make a petition about something absurd and I could get 30,000 people to sign it in a day. So it's not like, in other words, this is not something that's actually a giant percentage of the American population is saying, change the packaging on Trader Joe's, good sir, yeah! That's not true. It's a tiny fringe of people who are obsessed with silly things, and they went down this path. However, let's keep it real. When stories like this come out, <laughs> it is a giant gift to the right. Why? Because they get to turn around and say, would you look at how silly the left is this is all they think about. This is all they talk about. This is what they're obsessed with. And they call everything racist. So it feeds that, the reason why it's such a powerful story for the right is it feeds that stereotype. It feeds that narrative, ideally. Because you know what? When Trader Joe's made all of those products, and they named them, so you had Trader Ming's, Trader Jose, Trader Giotto's, Arabian Joe, and Trader Joe San, San, whatever, when they did that, you know why they did that? They did that because they were trying to be inclusive, diversified, and woke. So do you understand? They were trying up front to be inclusive, diversified, and woke. And the backlash, admittedly from a small number of people, but the backlash was, oh my God, you're not being inclusive, diversified, and woke. Those names are offensive. See, that, and that's the point about this whole debate. You can spin almost anything to seem wrong, to seem bigoted. You can. You really can. And it goes back to a point that I remember making in the context of a different story a few years ago. You can have cultural appropriation and be upset about that, or you can have multiculturalism. Because that, it's, it's the same thing. Multiculturalism means we have a melting pot of all these different cultures, and there's mutual respect, and it's a melting pot, and we all end up coming together, and there are people who were originally part of different cultures who intermingle and become friends and adopt different parts of each other's culture, and that's a positive thing, right? But some people would say, no, no, no. If one culture adopts some practices from another culture, well, that's cultural appropriation, actually. That's not okay. That's racist. So which one is it? Which one is it? Would you rather have no cultural appropriation, or would you rather have a multicultural melting pot 
where we all come together and learn to respect each other and learn to adopt parts of other people's cultures so we expand our horizons and we're all one big American family that's a mix of all these different previous cultures, which you can only pick one. And oftentimes what happens is, regardless of which one you go with, you'll have criticism and they'll say, well, that's racist because you're culturally appropriating, or it's racist because you didn't want to diversify and be with other cultures and adopt aspects of the culture. Which is it? And, and this is, every time I read a story like this, this is what pops in my head. There's no, there's no way around it. There's no way out of it. Because, you know, it would have been just as easy. Let's say Trader Joe's didn't have these, these names on products. It, somebody could have created a petition and said, hey, this is, why are you not respecting other cultures? Why do you only have Trader Joe's stuff? You couldn't name something Trader Jose's? Why, why? Why are you doing that? And, see, it could be anything. It could be anything, which, again, comes back to the main point. As long as we're battling over the symbolism stuff, we're never going to substantively fix the system. As long as we're battling over symbolism, we're never going to substantively fix the system, which means I'm here to beg and scream and yell at everybody on the left, wise up! Let's be freaking strategic here. Let's not immediately self-disenfranchise ourselves by picking battles like this. You know, it's a hell of a lot easier to get people to like you when you're talking about the substantive issues, when you're talking about ending the drug war, when you're talking about freeing the nonviolent drug offenders, when you're talking about ending the death penalty because 4% of the time we kill the wrong people and the death penalty is, you know, uh, is carry out in a racist way. It's a lot easier to get people to like you when you're focused on serious issues like wages and health care and ending corruption and ending wars. You want to talk about something that's racist? How about all of our wars in the Middle East, we killed minimum 200,000 Iraqi civilians. Minimum 200,000. If that was Sweden, do you think we would have valued those 200,000 lives more? I think so. So maybe there's a tinge of racism when it comes to carrying out that war and not caring about the consequences. That's a substantive conversation. That's substance. And the goal is end the wars. If we're, we got, there's no hope if this is the stuff that sidetracks everybody. Now, again, I want to be clear. It's only 1,500 people who signed it, so I don't want to blow it up to make it seem like it's a bigger thing than it is. It is a smaller percentage. But my point is, if somebody brings this up, you have to be willing to call bullshit when something is bullshit. Don't walk on eggshells just because you think, this is the position I'm supposed to take because I'm a lefty, and so I think this is a left-wing position. So, yeah, Trader Joe's is racist. Don't be a parody of yourself. Don't be an idiot. Be intelligent. Use your mind. Be strategic. Okay? If something is bullshit, call it bullshit. And, by the way, that'll also make it so you get a lot more converts to your side and to your perspective. So, anyway... Here we are again, more culture war nonsense. And um, I fear that in the wake of this horrendous moment with the George Floyd killing, police brutality, with the economic crash, with the pandemic, I don't want to waste this moment on stupid, symbolic culture war bullshit. I want real change, but apparently it's so easy for people to get diverted into the culture war and waste all their energy there. It is time, baby, it is time.
All right, next. Here we go. The economic protests in New York have now begun, and they will likely spread. So here's a local news report about how billionaires were targeted uh, for peaceful protests. New York State Senator Jessica Ramos sponsoring a bill that would tax New Yorkers making a billion dollars or more to create a bailout for a million New Yorkers not able to receive federal aid. No one can because I am documented. People like Sylvia Garcia, the undocumented and now unemployed factory worker, took part in a 24-hour sleep out and fast. The threat of homelessness, too real for her. It happened just steps away from Amazon billionaire Jeff Bezos' luxury apartment. The billionaire like this has a penthouse here that is $80 million. $80 million. Officials say New Yorkers who pay taxes, like food vendors, day laborers, and domestic workers, are bearing the brunt of the pandemic. I have a choice to fast, but I have a cab drivers dealing with their own economic woes caravaned in support of the marchers, even with unemployment aid, struggling to put food on the table. I don't know that is in life post-coronavirus. Governor Cuomo has said in the past taxing New York's wealthiest could drive them out of the state and continue to damage the tax base. All the pandemic has done is Okay, so um, they went to a luxury apartment of Jeff Bezos. They camped outside. They slept out there. They obviously protested and and, uh, spoke their minds. They want a billionaire's tax, and they want to use uh, that money, $5.5 billion worth, to do a bailout of undocumented workers. Now, undocumented workers have been sort of um, left behind in when it comes to these COVID bailouts. However, who are we kidding? All workers have been left behind. Of course. Of course. Um, so I think we're just getting started. I think there's going to be a lot more economic protests. I really, really support protests um, geared around the economy right now because we have a new depression. And I think it would be a massive error to only focus on culture war stuff and get out there in the streets for that alone. I think this economic stuff is is crucially, vitally important for people, especially at a moment like right now when everybody's getting hosed and you have all these COVID bailouts and the Federal Reserve quantitative easing, which is just making billionaires way richer as the economy freaking implodes and collapses. But I will say this, man. If we actually want to win... It has to be universal. In other words, you can't say, hey, let's do a billionaire's tax, 
and only bail out undocumented workers because somebody's obviously going to turn around and say, well, what about the documented worker who also can't pay the bills? Because there's millions of them too. What about American citizens who can't pay the bills? There's millions of them as well. So if, you, if that's the approach you're going to go with, let's tax billionaires and only bail out undocumented workers, you're, you're not going to get anybody on your side. You're going to poll well below 50%, and there's no way you're going to move the needle enough to actually get change, whether it's through the state legislature or if you want to go more ambitious and go to the um, federal level. So putting aside the issue itself, from a strategic perspective, there's no way you, you will win with this argument. Guys, I'm a huge proponent of a universal approach. Now, by the way, am I saying that, you know, if somebody's an undocumented worker and, you know, they haven't gotten any help, that I want to put my middle finger up to them? No. In fact, I have an approach that I think is a lot more reasonable with this stuff. Anybody who pays taxes can get a universal bailout here. So, in other words, I'm in favor of a UBI. The UBI goes towards any, anybody who pays taxes. Um, so... That's the argument we should go for. We should be arguing for universal-based income. We should be arguing for Medicare for all. I feel like these ideas need to be front and center, but if you don't do universal and you target it, that is effectively, that's a form of means testing. And means testing is a neoliberal idea. So you might think you're being uber lefty by saying, let's help undocumented workers here, but that you're really putting your middle finger up to documented workers and to American citizens who are struggling just as much. So, and, and by the way, I will say this, and this is something that's unfortunately the case, but there really is an argument that if you do a billionaire's tax and you only do it in New York, well, they'll just, a lot of them will just move to New Jersey or a lot of them will move to Connecticut. And so now is that an argument to have no billionaire's tax? No, 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 of course not. In fact, my argument is you should do it at the federal level. Now, this is where some people would say, okay, but then wouldn't they just move overseas. Now, on that front, the answer is effectively no. Maybe a very tiny number of them will, but the entire U.S. market is so crucially important to billionaires that they cannot give up on the U.S. market and they'll have to pay the taxes. If you just do it in New York, just the billionaire's tax in New York, that market is not as vital. They can just go to New Jersey. They can just go to Connecticut. Um, but it, when it comes to all of the United States, no, if you do a billionaire's tax at the federal level in the United States, you will not see this flight of billionaires elsewhere, and particularly because a lot of the other developed countries have steeper taxes anyway on the rich. So what are they going to do? They're going to pick up and go to Canada where, where, where they will probably be taxed more as, you know, overall? They wouldn't do that, would they? So in other words, too targeted specifically in New York, I do think you would see perhaps a little bit of a flight effect, which overall could reduce the tax base. So I don't, or I should say reduce the tax revenue. So I don't think that the response, not just from Republicans, but also from moderate Democrats, I don't think it's factually wrong in this particular instance, but I differ from them massively because I would say just do the billionaire's tax at the federal level, not at the state level. Um, but listen, man, overall, despite my little disagreements here and there with what's going on, we 100%, 100% need more economic-focused protests. Now, there's a pandemic. 
And I got triggered because so many people that were at that protest had the mask below their nose, which is like not wearing a mask at all. So we got to be careful. And, you know, really everybody should socially distance and be as safe as humanly possible. But to the extent that people keep going out outside and protesting, for the love of God, let's make it about universal basic income. Universal basic income. Let's make it about Medicare for all. This is the stuff it has to be about. Because we, we actually have a unique moment in history now where there is the opportunity, the possibility of change like this. Because remember, guys, the last time we got really radical change was when? The Great Depression, FDR, the New Deal. Things got so bad that they had no choice. They had to do something drastic. And th- that's the point we're at again right now. So I don't like the idea it shouldn't be micro-targeted. Billionaires tax can only help the undocumented workers. No, it's got to be universal. We gotta, we gotta go big and we gotta go strategic. So anyway, that's my breakdown of it. I think we're just getting started with these economic protests. I think they're gonna keep coming and they're gonna get bigger and bigger. All right, next. This is actually one of the stories of the day, and it's going to hurt me to talk about it. Here we go. CNBC has a report that honestly hurts to read. It's about the election, and look at this. Joe Biden's joint committee, committees, raised nearly $100 million in second quarter as big money donors get off the sideline. They continue. Many of Joe Biden's bundlers told CNBC that the renewed effort by these business leaders is linked to the fact that Senator Bernie Sanders and more liberal candidates are no longer a threat to becoming president. Donors to the Biden committees include James Murdoch, Steven Spielberg, and Merck CEO Ken Frazier. Quote, the big money donors are capitalists. For a minute, Bernie was close to locking it up, but then came South Carolina. They were petrified of Trump and horrified by Bernie. Now they actually have a choice before they didn't. Florida businessman and Biden bundler John Morgan told CNBC. This is the line that got me. The big money donors are capitalists. For a minute, Bernie was close to locking it up, but then came South Carolina. Guys, They thought it was a foregone conclusion, just like we all did. Remember the night of Nevada? Do you remember the night of Nevada? With that giant, overwhelming, crushing victory. We were like, oh, this is over. This is over. He won Iowa, although Mayor Pete tried some sketchy-ass stuff there. But he got the most votes in Iowa, won New Hampshire, won Nevada, and we were all like, oh, it's happening. It's happening. The donors looked at that same thing, and they were like, that's it. That's it. Bernie wins. 
The Democratic Party is now the party of Bernie Sanders. The Democratic Party is now becoming the party of Medicare for All and free college and a living wage and ending the wars and regulating Wall Street. They were like, we're done. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? They would have sided with Trump. Now, they say they hate Trump, but Trump gives them tax cuts and deregulates them. So ultimately, they'd be okay with him, even though they don't like the mean tweets. And they don't like his temperament. But they thought Bernie was going to win. See, guys, this is, I feel like this stuff is so important. And you know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of, in the Hillary Clinton documentary, they had moments as well, when Bernie would not go away and he kept hanging on, where they had moments openly behind the scenes where one of them said, Hillary's top staffers. Bernie Sanders is going to be the Democratic nominee. They said that in 2016. In 2020, even though overall Bernie's performance was worse, he started so hot out of the gates that the donors were convinced Bernie was going to win. I don't know if this is a fair reaction or not, but this actually makes me mad at Bernie more. (laughs) Because he was right there, man. He had it, 100%. He had it. And he blew it. When the time came to make the proper adjustments, he wasn't able to make the adjustments. He wasn't able to make the proper arguments. He wasn't able to get his ducks in a row behind the scenes to get the counter-endorsements to Biden's endorsements, which really helped put him over the top. He didn't have that killer instinct that he absolutely needed. But the donors thought it was over, and they thought Bernie Sanders was going to win the Democratic nomination. Well, now, see, what happened is all those big money donors are now coming back out going, okay, oh, thank God, still a neoliberal corporatist party. Everybody donate to, to Biden as much as possible now. But I think overall I do have a moment of hope, or I do have some hope to end this segment with. Guys. Don't be so convinced that our project isn't possible because our biggest enemies definitely think it's possible. So never get so down on what we're doing that you think, what's the point? This is all useless. We're never going to win anyway. The whole thing is rigged. Listen, they're going to try every single dirty trick against us, and they will. And we're going we're gonna to have some big losses. But guess what? We're also going to have some wins. Go talk to Elliot Engel how he feels about the leftward shift in the country. We have Jamal Bowman. We have Mondaire Jones. At the state and local level, we have DSA people getting elected all over the place. All over the place. So you don't have the luxury of feeling so down about the loss, particularly because even our harshest enemies are like, oh, oh, you think there's no way you'll ever win? Yeah, 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 definitely. There's no way you'll ever win. They, they know that there's a possibility that you'll win, will win in the long run. They know that this march towards social democracy is going to continue to gain steam. Because you know what? We actually stand for stuff. They don't. They stand for the status quo. They stand for business as usual. They stand for being diet Republicans. They stand for the tax cuts for the rich and the Wall Street deregulation and the continuation of the wars. They stand for an ideology that is deeply unpopular. The only reason Joe Biden really pulled this thing out is because of Bernie Sanders' strategic failures, but more importantly, people hated Trump so much that they defaulted to what they think is the safest option in Biden. 
So it was just an anti-Trump backlash. That's it. Well, guess what? The whole anti-Trump idea, that's not an idea that they could run elections on in perpetuity. When Trump's gone, Trump's gone. And so they're going to have to stand for something in the future. We already know what we stand for, and we argue for it on a daily basis. So even though things went, things went south, in some ways the future is bright. And it really is a little bit of a relief to know that the people who really run the country, the big money donors, the corrupt ones, they thought, well, we had a good run and our time is up. It looks like it's going back to being the party of FDR. There is a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know how far off it is. I know there's a lot of speed bumps in the way, but there is a light at the end of that tunnel. So keep fighting. All right, next. Here we go. This video popped up on my Twitter feed. This is amazing. I'm actually not even sure when it's from. I have a hunch based on what he says, okay, that this is from right after that debate when Bernie had won basically the first three contests. Then we had a debate. And do you guys remember how vicious everybody was against Bernie, basically calling him like, you know, a a dictator, Castro puppet and sympathizer, and they were hitting him with everything under the sun, Uh, how extreme he is and all this stuff. And I think this is when Bill O'Reilly went on his web show now and made this point. Now, it really is incredible, isn't it? As soon as you get rid of those corporate constraints and people start giving their real opinions, He actually sort of nails the dynamic of the 2020 Democratic primary. Watch this. How did that happen? How did Joe do it? Joe didn't do it. Oops. Wrong one. Let me start it over. So, you know if you watch me that I have told you the journalism industry in print and television is now top-down corporate. The corporations control it. Okay? The corporations do not want Bernie Sanders to win. It's obvious. Okay? Because Bernie Sanders is going to go in and quadruple taxation on all American corporations. And he's going to go in and he's going to just take a, a sledgehammer to the corporate structure in this country. We're talking Comcast. We're talking AT&T. We're talking Fox. We're talking CBS. We're talking uh, Disney, ABC. They don't want Bernie Sanders. All right? The chieftains, the board of directors, don't want him. So, very subtly, that message goes out to the news managers. All right? Now, they'll deny it, but I know it's true. I worked in the business for 45 years. I saw it firsthand. Very subtly, the message goes out. Mm, Not so much, Bert. You see tomorrow. It's going to start tomorrow. Biden's going to, oh, the resurgent Joe. Joe is resurgent. How did that happen? How did Joe do it? Joe didn't do it. 
I'll be damned if that's not spot on. You had relentless propaganda after that debate where they all went for Bernie's jugular, where everybody was saying, Joe Biden, oh my God, he's surging back, what an amazing showing. And then after South Carolina, forget it. They put the propaganda into overdrive and made it seem like, well, obviously Joe is the only one who could beat Donald Trump, and obviously this is a comeback, and obviously this thing is over, and obviously Bernie peaked too early, and they were writing Bernie's political obituary from the beginning. But they really went into propaganda overdrive right at the right time to influence the race and have a maximum effect. So look at his points. He says, the news is corporate. The corporations do not want Bernie because he'll raise their taxes. I'll add to what Bill said there. Not only will he do that, he will also limit corporate control over Washington, D.C. by doing something to fight the corruption and the money in politics and how beholden Congress is to the corporations, to the big money donors. Um, And he says, since that's the case, since you have these corporations and they don't want Bernie, it's subtle but the word comes out. The word comes out from the higher-ups for management at these companies. No Bernie. And everybody who's, everybody who's hired and who's a prominent voice in the main networks reflects the ideology of the network. In the case of Fox News, the ideology is pro-Republican, pro-Trump. In the case of CNN and MSNBC, it's generally pro-Democratic establishment. So it's more of like Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, the Clintons, like that's the ideology. And that clearly is not Bernie Sanders' social democratic ideology. And sometimes it even goes a little further than that. Sometimes it's overt. Remember the story that Ed Schultz told about how he had planned his entire show was going to be about Bernie launching his campaign in 2016, and they were going to do this whole big thing, and he got a call from the head of MSNBC right before he was going to go on air saying, you're not doing this. You're not covering Bernie Sanders' launch. Bernie Sanders a U.S. senator for so long, a prominent American political figure for so long, but since he has outsider ideas, since he would question corporate power, they tried to stop a news host from covering Bernie's launch of his campaign. Woke Bill (laughs) O'Reilly. This is Bill O'Reilly. Going full, oh, I'm not on Fox News anymore? All right, I can afford to tell the truth about a couple things here. Bernie bro Bill O'Reilly, that's what we just saw there. It really is kind of crazy, isn't it? The second that you get a lot of these people off corporate news, they're like, anyways, let me tell you about how all this is bullshit, and let me tell you about what's really going on behind the scenes and where all the pressures lie. By the way, a lot of the... A lot of the of the discourse just happens in the hiring process, too. There's a reason why Wolf Blitzer got a 1,000 hours a day on air at CNN, because he's never going to rock the boat. He's always going to represent the establishment point of view without thinking about it. You don't have to control him because he's already hired because that's how he is already. Remember when he was talking to Rand Paul? Rand Paul said, um, we should stop arming Saudi Arabia because they're committing a genocide in Yemen. And Wolf Blitzer's response was something along the lines of, Well, what about the jobs for the defense contractors? Networks want people like that because they will never, ever, ever threaten business interests, threaten corporate power and hierarchy. 
really rock the boat to try to bring about real change? Never. So you get all these robots, all these unthoughtful people, like a Wolf Blitzer. So anyway, there you have it. The strangest clip maybe ever. Bill O'Reilly randomly becoming a Bernie bro and telling the truth. All right, guys, we are done. I love you, baby. Now, I will see all of you. Here's what we're going to do. Wednesday show again. We're going to do Wednesday at 2, not 2.30. Wednesday at 2 Eastern, okay? The next secular talk show is Wednesday at 2 Eastern. I love you guys. See you then. I'm out. Peace.